Well, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to John chapter 19, which we'll begin considering verse 16. It's John chapter 19 and verse 16. If you don't have a Bible, I invite you to turn in your pew Bibles to page 905. In fact, if you don't own a Bible, um, that's, as we already mentioned, that's our gift to you. You've got a pew Bible in the rack in front of you. If you don't have a copy of the scripture, we ask that you would take that and that you would um, rejoice in God's word. And so please take that. And as you find your way to John chapter 19, you're, you'll notice, perhaps if you're already there, that uh, today we're going to walk on uh, what perhaps we could consider to be the, the holy ground of scripture um, as we prepare to enter into this holy week and consider what our Lord has done through his death, which we'll consider this morning and again on our Good Friday service, and as well as his resurrection that we'll consider tonight and of course on Easter Sunday, um, we enter into this place this morning, this scripture, I think with a, a bit of sense of trembling. The great Charles Spurgeon once said about the passion events, here we come to the holy of holies of the Lord's life on earth. No man can rightly expound such a passage as this. It is a subject for prayerful, heartbroken meditation. Another said, surely this passage we must approach on our knees. The great D.A. Carson wrote, as Jesus' death was, so, was unique, so also was his anguish, and our best response to it is hushed worship. And so let us consider now the Word of God as it unfolds for us the death of our Lord, beginning in John 19 and verse 16. Hear now the word of God. So he delivered him over to be crucified. So they took Jesus and went out bearing his own cross to a place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, 
The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with them. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But when the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water, he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. No, not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Father in heaven, we ask now that you would help us. We have, we have done our best this morning to worship you, to praise you, and we can want to continue to worship you, but we ask that you would come and serve us in this worship service. We need your help, Father that we might consider the magnitude of the truths that lie before us, that we might see your love in the death of your Son. Help us, we pray, in Christ's name. Amen. Every religion has a symbol. Every ideology has an emblem that usually illustrates a core belief, their causes. John Stott, in his uh, classic book, The Cross of Christ, writes that Buddhists have the lotus flower, which is a wheel shape depicting the circle of life. Judaism has the Star of David, a hexagram formed from two triangles emphasizing God's covenant with David. Islam, the crescent moon, which was a symbol used by other nations at that time representing power. Marxism has the hammer and sickle, signifying the union of the two forms of labor, manufacturing and agriculture. Christianity, likewise, sought a symbol. And early Christians had a lot to choose from. Of course, they could have chosen the manger to represent that Christ has come for us from heaven. Or perhaps the carpenter's bench to signify Jesus' early life or the dignity of labor. Or a boat for Jesus, who after all was the fisher of men. Perhaps they would choose a stone to proclaim that he is alive and risen from the dead. Or maybe even a throne to emphasize his sovereign control of the king of kings. And yet by the second century, they, they passed over all these options. And I trust many more. And they chose as a symbol an empty cross. This was a scandalous choice. It would be similar for us if we chose an electric chair or a hangman's noose to represent our religion. After all, this, this was an instrument of torture for capital criminals. And John Stott writes that the early Christians wished to commemorate as central to their understanding of Jesus neither his birth nor his youth. 
Neither his teaching nor his service. Neither his resurrection nor his reign. But his death. His crucifixion. So why? Why choose, of all the things they could choose, why the cross? And even more so, why when this is very much the repulsive instrument of torture and anguish? And yet, interestingly, we as Christians don't hesitate to love and to cherish the cross of Christ. The, the, the cross brings forth this, this joy from our heart. But it also, at the same time, brings forth sorrow, doesn't it? I, I gathered uh, my children and their cousins who were visiting uh, last night, and we studied this passage in John 19 to prepare for worship, and, and we considered this text. And I asked them after we studied this text, I said, what, 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 do, you, what do you feel when you, when you read about the crucifixion of Jesus, the cross? And, and some of them said, it, it makes me feel sad. And we talked about that. And others said, it makes, makes me feel happy. And it, it makes us do both, right? We call that sappy in our house. Right? <laughs> we have sorrow, and yet we have joy. We have abhorrence, and yet adoration. We have woe and wonder. We have grief and gladness. You see, in the cross, God demonstrates both the love, His immeasurable love in which He has displayed in the cross, and at the same time, the severity of your sin, which demanded it. It's an interesting choice, isn't it? I want to consider the cross this morning with you. And as we do, I want to be mindful as to why it is the center of our faith. Why it is that Jesus hung upon that cross. He did so because of your sin and my sin. And my hope is, is that in understanding this, we will let the, th- the, the thought of the cross conjure up for us a hatred for sin. When Ever we are short with our wives or dishonor our parents or impatient on the road or wayward in our thoughts or silent in our worship or divisive in the church or tepid in our adoration. We would be reminded Christ died for those sins. The cross would help us hate sin. And yet, we not only see the severity of sin on the cross, we see His love. Jesus went to the cross not simply because of your sin, but because God loves you. And so let the the love of God manifested in the cross conjure up a stunned worship at the depth of His mercy and a growing need to declare His praise and an increasing desire to follow Him in joyful submission. Let the cross help you rejoice in God's love. In fact, that's what I want to consider this morning. I want to focus in on the love of God demonstrated in the cross. And we see God's love in the cross and the fact that God was in control of all the events. I want us to see the sovereignty of God in the crucifixion of His Son. And as we look upon something that is filled with shame and trouble, we recognize that it was no accident. This was the plan of God that underneath all of these events is the sovereign control of God as He deals with my sin and your sin, that He might enter into this eternal covenant with you, that He might save you. And so let's look at this text, these seven scenes of the sovereignty of God in the crucifixion of His Son. As we think about God's love for us, we begin by seeing His crucifixion. Verse 16, So He delivered Him over to be crucified 
So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. You notice Jesus went out. He left Jerusalem. It would have been illegal for him to be crucified within the city. The other gospel accounts tell us he was paraded through the streets, most likely taking the longest route possible out of the city for the bystanders to look upon him in derision and to offer him their scorn and their mocking. Eventually, they'll arrive at this place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha, or in Latin is called Calvary. It reminds us, I think, as Jesus leaves Jerusalem of long ago, as God instructed the people of Israel to, on the Day of Atonement, to take the goat and to cast all their sin, confess their sin upon the goat, and then the goat would then be representing uh, uh, one carrying that sin, that scapegoat. And what they would do with that goat is they would send it out of the city, that the sin might be taken far from them. We see that Christ likewise is sent out of the city to carry our sin. But we notice not simply where they took Jesus, we also notice that how they took him. Verse 17 tells us that he was bearing his own cross. Now we know he can only carry it so far according to the other gospel accounts. It was probably weighed close to 100 pounds. It would just be the, the horizontal beam that he would be carrying. And so they would enlist a bystander to finish that duty. But before they did so, they would hoist that beam upon his back and that he might carry that cross on his lacerated and bloody back. He would carry the wood upon which he would be sacrificed. And we can't help but be reminded long ago of another who would carry the wood upon his back up to a hill in order to be offered. Isaac, of course, we think of when we read this event, this picture of Christ as Abraham's only son also climbed a hill with wood upon his back. In fact, the hill that Isaac climbed was Mount Moriah, which is the very hill that Jerusalem would be built upon. And there when they brought him up to that place, you see that he was placed with two others. Verse 18 tells us they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. The other gospels tell us they are thieves for probably Barabbas's associates. They're notorious thieves, terrible individuals. And yet Christ is placed there, right there, isn't he? Right in the middle, in fact, John will tell us. And the message is clear is what they're trying to communicate that, that he, Jesus, is just like them. And yet Isaiah had foretold 700 years prior that he would be numbered amongst the transgressors. That God's message is clear. That the place where his son had taken was the place reserved for lawbreakers. It was a place due for you and I. That he would be identified with sinners so that you and I can be identified with God. Verse 18 says they crucified him. That is, they would spread his arms out wide upon a crossbeam and they would nail spikes most likely through his wrist, which they would consider to be part of the, the hand at that time and nail him to that beam and then hoist him up. And once he was raised, they would overlap his feet and, and put a, another spike through both feet. Josephus, Josephus uh, the Jewish historian, said it was the most wretched of deaths. Tacitus described it as a despicable death. Cicero said... It is the most cruel and terrible penalty, incapable of description by any word, for there is none fit to describe it. The pain which Jesus must experience would be excruciating. In fact, that's what that word means, excruciating. It means out of the cross. In other words, the, the cross was so severe that it created its own vocabulary in order to describe the pain in which one experienced upon that cross. And yet even there, as he's crucified, we're reminded once again of the control of God, the sovereign control of God in this, for David had prophesied a thousand years earlier, even before crucifixion was ever invented. 
According to Psalm 22, they pierced my hands and my feet. They pierced. And so as we see his crucifixion, please understand that this indeed is a terrible day. But God had not lost control. God, God had, had not been at a place where he's unable to help his son, that things just get out of hand and he can't get involved. Rather, God in heaven is sovereignly controlling it to the smallest detail that he might save you and save me. God was in control in the crucifixion and he was also in control of the crime in which he was accused as we see the second scene, his crime. See, once he was crucified, they would place a placard above his head which would list the crime for which he is being crucified as a way to deter passerbyers that they might not commit the same crime. The crime of Jesus is recorded in verse 19. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Now you see, this is Pilate's kind of last act of revenge, isn't he? He who's been manipulated by the, by the Sanhedrin and by the Jewish elite. He, he says, okay, if you want to crucify this one, I'm going to let everyone know that this is your king. Just as you said, he claims to be that your king is being crucified. The hope of Israel is hanging upon a cross as a common criminal. And so he tries to rub salt in their wounds and devastate their pride. And many read it. For we see in verse 20, many of the Jews read this inscription. For the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic and Latin and in Greek. And so people would come by and, and executions were popular and it's certainly that of Jesus of Nazareth, this famous rabbi. And they would watch him. And, and they saw that sign and they read it and they were rather annoyed. For they see in verse 21, the chief priest said to uh, the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said that I am the king of the Jews. But Pilate would not be persuaded. For we see in verse 22, Pilate answered what I have written, I have written. And so there it is. They're hanging on the cross. Jesus Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Pilate makes an interesting prophet, doesn't he? There is he testifies to the truth of who Christ is. You see, God is, is so sovereign that the very man who would sit in judgment over Jesus, God's son, would actually be used by God to announce truth about his son. He was simply a tool in God's hand. He is king of the Jews. He is the king of kings. They declared it on that Palm Sunday and we declared it today and he comes and even as he hangs upon the cross, he is serving as king for what does a king do but defend his people and defeat their enemies and there upon the cross, he is defending us from ourselves. He is defeating our enemy's sin. He is doing war against that which would destroy us and Pilate and these soldiers testified to truth despite themselves. They even take the trouble to write it in three languages in Aramaic, which would be the local language language and in uh, Latin, which would be the Roman language and in Greek for the foreign travelers. It is, it seems to me that the first gospel track was written by a pagan ruler trying to mock our faith. And yet God is in control. It's the sovereign hand of an unstoppable God. Make sure that is written. And I trust many read it. I would speculate that it was the thief on the cross who read that. For what did he say? But Jesus Remember me when you come into your, what is it, kingdom. He looked at that, that sign and said, this man is the king of the Jews. When you come into your kingdom, will you remember me? And he placed his faith in Christ. As Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. And then many would read that and see king, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. But I wonder if God looked down upon the cross from heaven and he saw a different inscription. 
He didn't see the, the gl glorious royal title of Jesus, but rather he saw my sin nailed to that cross and your sin nailed to that cross. I think it's in reference to this custom that Paul writes in Colossians 2, that God made us alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses and by counseling the record of debt that stood against us. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. All your debt, sinner, nailed to the cross. All your sin and trespasses was there on the cross for which Christ was dying. His cross bore the placard of our crime. And because Jesus died, your debt is canceled. And your trespasses are forgiven. And your iniquity absolved. And your rebellion parted. And your sin remembered no more. As He placed that on the cross. We see His crime... But soon we move into his disgrace as we look in verse 23. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier, sh sh uh, soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. So the soldiers did these things. This, our Lord would be stripped naked. Um, he would there be fully exposed as they nailed him to the cross. And to add to the shame of his exposure, the, the soldiers would, would divide his clothes and his feet while he hung there dying. Um, there, we're told here that there are four soldiers, five pieces of clothing. So they divided the four and they had one left and they cast lots or similar to rolling dice to see who would end up with his tunic. And, and yet it, it's here, as these soldiers divided his clothes, that they are fulfilling Scripture, aren't they? I mean, Paul even, uh, John even quotes it for us. They are unwittingly obeying its orders, as, as John will quote from Psalm 22 here, that they divided my garments among them, and, and for my clothing they cast lots. I mean, even to the very detail, the division and the casting lots for his clothing. You see, not one word from God can fail. There are thousands of years before this, thousand years before this, they prophesied that these soldiers should both divide his garments and cast lots for them. It is fulfilled to the very letter. Do you understand that, that God's word is, is perfectly trustworthy? It's almost like every phrase is completing some promise told long ago that the Bible is a true guide for us. I wonder if it has been for you this week. I wonder if you have consulted God's word for wisdom. Look to God through His Word, trusting in it to show you Him. In fact, I, I, please forgive me if I'm reading too much into this, but it, it, it strikes me as awfully coincidental, perhaps, or, or perhaps sovereign, that, that here Christ is stripped naked, and I'm reminded of how God clothed our first parents, Adam and Eve. You do remember that they who sinned, fell immediately into shame as they noticed their nakedness and God out of great grace came and clothed them in response to their sin. And here is Christ who, of course, has no sin and yet he is the one who is exposed. Sinful Adam was clothed by God and the sinless last Adam, as Paul explained, was unclothed by wicked men. 
John Calvin notes this parallel saying, Let us learn that Christ was stripped of His garments that we might be clothed with righteousness. That His naked body was exposed that we might appear in glory before the judgment seat of God. And while all this was going on, while all, all this evil and wickedness surrounded Jesus and besieged upon Him, there's this glimpse of, of beauty and compassion as you see this fourth scene of compassion. Um, in fact, verse 25 says, But, do you notice that? The cross, all that's happening is not just cruelty and bitterness, but what happens? But standing by the cross of Jesus were His mother and His mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And so there are four women there who are attending to Jesus at the foot of the cross, perhaps to stand in contrast to the four soldiers that we just saw. They're all drawn to Jesus because they love Him. But there is, of course, one in particular that carries an extra burden upon that day. His mother, of course, Mary. She who gave birth to Jesus and she who raised Jesus. And she there stands at the foot of the cross and sees her son dying for her. And she, she, she's not alone because He tells us not only are these women there, but notice verse 26, when Jesus saw His mother and the disciple whom He loved, standing nearby. That's a reference to John, the author of this book. John will never mention his own name in his uh, gospel. He'll always refer to himself as the beloved disciple. And, and he's there, and they've come there to, to minister to Jesus. I mean, they look at the cross and they see, all, all they see is tragedy. This is, this is the worst po- of all possible outcomes. And they've gathered there that he might not die alone. And yet the amazing thing is that rather than receiving their ministry, Jesus ministers to them. He cares for them. As you see, as we read on in verse 26, and he, and he said uh, to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to, to his own home. If you're wondering why he called her his mom woman, um, I, I think it's perhaps he's, he's referencing to the change in relationship that's taking place. He's speaking to her more as her savior than her son. And she's trying to perhaps uh, let her know that. And yet, nevertheless, he still cares for her, doesn't he? As his mother, as he honors her by providing for her a new son and a place for her to live and someone to love her and to care for her. And Christ is doing this great work of compassion. I hope that this little, this little picture, this just a handful of verses here in the middle of the crucifixion will, will help you understand the depths of Christ's compassion for us. I mean, you think about it. What is he doing? He's hanging on the cross. He's about to bear the sin of the world, the wrath of God upon himself. He is enduring unimaginable pain. This is, the, this is the focal point of all creation. This is why he left heaven and became a man. This is God's eternal plan. And yet in the midst of all that pain, in the midst of culmination of, of all events on this day, he still has the mind to care for those around him. To share His love for them. How unlike we are to Christ. We, we stub our toe and it's all about us. Christ has been pierced and hanging on the cross and yet He's caring for those who gather there. Perhaps you should take note of this if you come here today carrying pain and hardship. Now, there are burdens upon your shoulders. You who are perhaps tempted to think that God is too busy running the world to be preoccupied with your suffering and your sorrow and your trouble. His compassion knows no limit. His love knows no end. 
He is mindful of what's going on in your life. He is aware. He will help. He always will be God with us, caring for us. In fact, he even cares for John. I think it's worth noting that John is there. And remember what John had just done before these events. He had, uh, as did all the apostles, he had fled from Jesus and his time of greatest need. He had ran like a coward, turned his back upon his master and, and sought to save himself as they dragged Jesus off to be tried and eventually crucified. And yet here he is. I don't know if he's conjuring up the courage to actually come back to Jesus. And, but he finally does it. And he meets Jesus while Jesus is hanging on that cross. And how is it does that Jesus meets him? Is it with a look of disapproval or, or a, a word of rebuke? He who, who would not watch, stay awake and watch for a single hour, but fled at Christ's time of greatest need. There is no rebuke for him. There is no scorn for him. Rather, he received this unimaginable privilege to care for Jesus' mother. I mention this because perhaps there is one here this morning that at one time followed Christ and yet find yourself today far from him. Maybe, maybe Mark shared with us his, his stories of being a child in church and maybe, maybe you grew up in church and yet somehow in his adulthood you've walked away and, and today you find yourself in a far and distant land. I want you to understand that you do not have to come back to him begging and crawling. You just need to come back to him and he will offer you grace and love and mercy. He will welcome you home. His, knows no, his compassion knows no limits. Well, notice fifthly this fifth scene, his payment. We see this here in verses 28 and 30, but there's a detail that John leaves out that the other gospel writers include. We're, we know that after he cared for his mother, the darkness fell upon the land. Mark will tell us that from the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. That is noon. The sixth hour will be noon. So when the sun was at its zenith it's, um, till three o'clock, darkness fell upon the land. In fact, other uh, ancient accounts tell us that there was darkness in the middle of the day at this time, far from, from Jerusalem, interestingly enough. And so it seems like this darkness didn't simply fall upon Christ, but upon the, the whole land, far from there. And for three hours, um, there was darkness and there was also silence. We know those three hours, neither Jesus spoke nor, nor any of the mockers or the thieves. There was no word uttered for those three hours, just darkness and silence. This is interesting to think about when you read Amos chapter 8 and it says, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will make that time like the morning for an only sun. And you see the, the prophecy that was foretold that darkness will come as God mourns for the loss of a son in Amos 8 9. But it also reminds us, I think, uh, of uh, what Steve spoke about when he read the scripture for us this morning of the plagues that fell upon Egypt. And we consider the 10th plague. But the ninth plague was the plague of, of darkness, that darkness covered the land for three days. And that darkness would immediately precede the killing of the Passover lamb. And now as the final Passover lamb is about to die, so darkness covers the land, not for three days, but for three hours. And it was during those three hours that God poured out his wrath upon Jesus to pay for my sin and your sin. It was foretold by the prophet Isaiah who said, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. 
He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Wave after wave after wave of judgment and sin cast upon the back of our sinless Lord. He took his, all of our sin upon him. There, in the midst of that darkness. It's interesting because he who at, was at his birth was accompanied by midnight brightness and praise. Now, at his, and his death is accompanied by noontime darkness and silence. He took that sin upon him. And when he knew that it was finished, we pick up the story here in verse 28, after Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill scripture, I thirst. The irony is in John 7, he said, if anyone, uh, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And yet now he is the one who is thirsty. And dehydration was part of the torture of the cross. And no doubt that he thirsted. But, but John is clear that what he's doing is he's attempting to fulfill scripture, not simply to alleviate his suffering, right? Because he says he, he knows it's done and, and there's his scripture left to be fulfilled. Everybody's already done their work. Un, unknowingly, most of them are fulfilling the word of God as God controls this. But Jesus wants to make sure they're all accomplished. And so he says, I thirst. And we read on that they fulfilled the prophecy in verse 29. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. For the psalmist said in Psalm 69, For my thirst they will give me sour wine to drink. It's exactly what he received here, sour wine, as it was foretold hundreds, uh, in fact a thousand years before him. In fact, he was offered something to drink twice, wasn't he? Before he was crucified, he was offered wine mixed with myrrh to deaden his pain. That he would refuse. But here they offer him wine vinegar or sour wine and he takes it. He drinks from a sponge attached to the end of, end of a hyssop branch. You'll, you perhaps will uh, heard Steve mention that because the hyssop branch would be the very branch by which they would take the Passover lamb's blood and apply it to their doorposts. And here Christ takes this drink knowing that all has finished. He says, I thirst. And then once he takes that drink, we read verse 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said... It is finished. I'll be very clear here. Because he does not say, I am finished. This is not a cry of defeat. This is not the groan of a victim. This is not the declaration of one who is now resigned to his fate. It is finished. It is the proclamation of a victor. It is one who has accomplished his work. It is a shout of triumph. It is finished. He finished the work. All the work that he had come to accomplish, it is finished. It is finished. It is finished. It's done. In fact, the word, the Greek word is tetelestai. It means paid in full. Our debt that was owed to God for all of our sin has been paid. The suffering is ended. That which from his holy soul shrank is over. The Lord has bruised him. Man and devil have done their worst. The cup has been drained. The awful storm of God's wrath has spent itself. The darkness ended. The sword of divine justice sheathed. The wages of sin have been paid. The prophecies of his sufferings are fulfilled. The cross has been endured. Divine holiness.
wickedness has been fully satisfied and with a cry of triumph, a cry that would reverberate even to this day, our Lord declared, it is finished. Say that with me. It is finished. It's done. The work is done. You, friend, need to add nothing to it. It is complete. There is no ritual to keep, no box to check, no list to fulfill. He has done it all. And you will not get to heaven and give Jesus a high five and say, we did it. It will not happen. He has completed that work for us. Guilty, vile, helpless we. The spotless Lamb of God was He. Full atonement. Can it be? Hallelujah. What a Savior. It is finished. He has done that work. And when it is finished, you notice He bowed His head, verse 30, and gave up His spirit. Please do not understand Jesus merely as a victim. He was a victim. There is no doubt to that. But He was not merely a victim. He foretold in John 10, I lay down my life. And He in His authority bowed His head and gave up His spirit. Literally, He handed over His spirit. So no, the crucifixion did not kill Him. He did not expire on that cross. He chose to die. At 3 p.m., the very hour the priest sacrificed the Passover lambs, he gave his spirit back to the Father because there was nothing more for him to do. It had all been accomplished. The work was finished. And so if the work is finished, you have nothing to do. Say nothing with me. Nothing. You have nothing to do. You have nothing to add. This is where Christianity stands in contrast to all the world's religion. Because they all say, do this or do that or don't do this in order that God might accept you. And Christ does not say that. Christ says, I've already done all the work. You don't need to add anything. You try to add something, you're going to mess it up. Trust me. He doesn't need your help. It's been done. In fact, I love the story that author Arthur Pink once told when he said, told of a Christian farmer who had the concern over the salvation of his, of his neighbor. His neighbor who was a carpenter. And, and the neighbor said, I, I think I need to add something in order to be saved. I need to contribute something. And he couldn't get it through the, this man's head that Christ had done it all. And so one day he asked his carpenter neighbor to build him a gate. And, and he built him a gate and he asked him to come help him hang his gate. And when the carpenter went out and saw the, the farmer there and there the gate was ready to be hung. But the farmer had an axe in his hand. And the carpenter said, well, what's the axe for? And, well, the, and the farmer said, well, I'm just going to add a couple strokes to your work. And the, and the carpenter said, no, it's perfect. And yet the farmer went ahead anyways and began to swing that axe against the gate until it was completely demolished. And the, and the carpenter said, well, you've ruined my work. And the farmer said, yes, exactly. And you are doing this to Christ's work. You are trying to ruin the work of Christ by your miserable additions to it. You don't have to add anything to his work. You're here this morning. You're not a Christian. I want you to understand Christianity is not a religion of do. It's a religion of done. It has been done. The work has been finished. You simply need to receive it. You simply need to bow your knee to King Jesus, the crucified one who rose from the grave and make him your Lord and all of your sin shall be washed away through the work of the cross. He did that work. He paid it all. And yet, uh, even though the work is done, God is not done controlling the events that accompany this. You notice the sixth scene, his death. Normally in a crucifixion, they would would hang upon that cross 
for, uh, for days. It would usually take about two or three days to die because no vital uh, organs were damaged in the act of crucifixion. So they either died from blood loss or asphyxiation or impatient vultures. Um, and so they would hang there because they would want to deter people from committing the same crime. And, and, and they would leave them there. They would even leave them there after they died to, to add to their shame. But, but if there was a special day coming up, a day in which you want to clean up the place, um, they would make exceptions. And we see here there, there is a holiday, a religious holiday coming in verse 31. It's the Passover. Since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath. For the Sabbath was a high day. And so this day is coming and they want to clean up the place. They want to, they, they want to fulfill the law is what they're trying to do. And then, you see the irony here. That these people are trying to fulfill the law to the minutest detail. Why they're actually killing the one who gave them the law. And, and so they said we need to take him off the cross. And so they have this request in verse 31. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken so that they might be taken away. And so they would take a mallet and they would come and shatter the leg bones so you would no longer be able to push yourself up in order to expand your diaphragm and take a breath. And so what they would do, they would suffocate the death is, is what would happen when their legs were broken. And so they did this. We see this in verse 32. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the other who had been crucified with them. They, they did it to the thieves, but they are surprised to find Jesus was already dead for verse 33 tells us. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. And so Christ had, had already died. It would be obvious to them because he's not pushing himself up. You would have to push yourself up every time you would want to take a breath. And he's not doing that. And so since he's not dead, they don't break his legs. Which is what the end of verse 33 tells us. So they do not break his legs. Well, what's the significance in that? Well, the, the significance is, once again, that the Passover lamb who was who's killed... And the blood was taken to spread above their doorpost when Israel was in Egypt so that the angel death would pass over them, that God's wrath would pass over them. Well, so you would kill this spotless lamb and you would take the blood and you would apply it there and you would eat the meat of the lamb. But there was one rule about the lamb. You're not to break any of the lamb's bones. In fact, Exodus chapter uh, 12 says, do not break any of the bones. Now, God never explained why that was the case. It doesn't interfere in applying the blood or the meal. It, it was a very strange command. He never said, don't break the bones for these reasons. He never told them. He just said, for this special sacrifice, do not break the bones. And they never knew the significance until this day. You see, what God was doing is He was giving them a, a way to recognize the true Passover lamb when He came. And, and John recognizes that. For verse 36 tells us, For these things took place that the Scripture might be filled. Not one of His bones will be broken. And, and just as, just as uh, every Passover lamb for year after year, thousands, millions of Passover lambs, their bones were never broken. And here the true Passover lamb comes that the wrath of God might pass over us. And His bones were not broken as God continues to control the events. Well, even though his bones aren't broken, they, I guess they want to be especially sure that he's dead. So verse 34 tells us, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. And, and uh, once there came out blood and water. So he ran the spear in his side, once again fulfilling another prophecy told hundreds of years before. For verse 37 tells us, and again another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Is this not remarkable that both these things happened because they had orders to do the opposite. They were to break his legs and had no intention of piercing his side. And yet God is working, isn't he? Sovereignly controlling. I think one commentator said, all the legions of Caesar could not have broken a single bone on Jesus on that day. And it didn't happen. They didn't break his bones as God had told. God is working in every detail to bring about our salvation. And finally, we come to the last scene, his burial. In verse 38 we read, And these things Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, 
And so Josephus will be mentioned, uh, Joseph of Arimathea will be mentioned here. This will be the only time he'll be mentioned in the Bible. We know that he was a secret disciple. He was hid because he was afraid. He's a member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling elite of the Jews. And he comes out of hiding, doesn't he? At the end of verse 38, he asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, so he took his body away. Do you realize he's risking a lot in doing this? Uh, certainly Pilate, who's angry at being manipulated, could, could um, do terrible things to him, could take out his revenge on this member of the Jewish ruling body, Joseph. Certainly the Sanhedrin, when they get word of this, they're not going to be pleased with that at all. They could kick him out or, or um, ostracize him. It's, it's amazing to me that this man who was a coward in life, in Jesus' life, now has this incredible courage even though Jesus is dead. The, the cause is ruined. There's no hope in his heart for the resurrection. And amazingly, he's not alone for verse 39 tells us Nicodemus also who had earlier come to Jesus by night. Nicodemus we mentioned a number of times in John's Gospel, but always as the disciple who uh, came by night. He was this closet disciple, also a friend. And, and, and he who sought the shelter of darkness now steps into the broad daylight and says, I am with Jesus. I belong to Christ. And these men come and begin to make preparations for his burial. Josephus, or excuse me, Nicodemus in verse 39 comes bringing myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths and with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. It's amazing to me that, that these men who would not honor Jesus in life out of fear now run to him in death. As if they're new men. And God is working in their hearts. And I don't know if you could watch them as the shadows lengthen, begin to prepare this body for burial. And there they, they wrap these linen straps around his body, mixing in spices in between the fold 75 pounds worth in the candlelight of a flickering limestone tomb. And they will probably wash the caked, the blood caked body of Jesus, mix the spices in, and they would eventually come to his head. And, and there they would t- tie a, a turban-like uh, cloth around his head, and eventually they would they would leave. You, you wonder what they must have felt as they walked out. What, what guilt? Maybe what sadness, shame, as they silently left that tomb. I find this, I want to just point this out because it's interesting to me that you see what Jesus is receiving. He's receiving a royal burial. He who was not honored in life is finally given the honor that he's due in death. I mean, this is one who's been executed as a capital criminal of the Roman Empire, a blasphemer, an insurrectionist. And immediately upon death, he's treated like he's a king. The, the amount of spices would have represented Nicodemus's entire fortune. It was the amount that would be used in a royal burial. And the tomb which is provided for him is not a common grave, but a new tomb, unused, for verse 41 tells us. Now in that, that place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had been laid. So because of the, day, of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Jesus treated better in death than he ever was in life. As these clandestine followers of Jesus emerge from the shadows for a ruined cause. It is the work of God. Isaiah foretold that not only would the suffering Messiah die in the company of the wicked, he would be attended by the rich and his death. Even in death, God shows his control as he exalts his son, Jesus. My hope this morning as we consider this this beautiful and powerful text is that you will see on this day, this fateful day, the air was thick with the promises of God being fulfilled one after another. Repeatedly, we are shown the invisible hand of God as he sovereignly uses 
these people to do His work, to, to that Christ might die, that you and I might be saved. This was done by God. But it was also done because of you. And because of me. See, it's because of our sin. We join with that mob. We are the ones, are we not, sinners, who are calling out, crucify Him. Crucify Him. That's our work. And the old spiritual asks, where were you when they crucified my Lord? We answer, yes, we were there. And not as spectators, but as participants, scheming and betraying and bargaining and handing Him over to be crucified. John Stott says, until you see the cross as that which is done by you, you will never appreciate that it is done for you. The Scottish hymn says, "'Twas I that shed the sacred blood. I nailed him to the tree. I crucified the Christ of God. I joined the mockery. Of all that shouting multitude, I feel that I am the one. And in that din of voices rude, I recognize my own. Around the cross, the throng I see, mocking the sufferings groan. Yet still my voice, it seems to be, as if I mocked alone." Do you see the wonder of grace? The wonder of God's love. Hell-deserving sinners welcomed into the arms of a holy God. Do you see it? Do you see God's grace? This is not simply a naked man hanging on a tree in an indiscreet part of the world. This is a sovereign God who is enduring our condemnation that you might be saved. All your life. All eternity is determined by what you do with this event. Will you bow your knee to this crucified and risen Lord? Will you surrender your heart? Will you stop playing religious games with Him and give Him everything? In fact, you notice one last verse as we end. One verse we skip. Verse 35. Why are we told these things? He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true and knows that he is telling the truth that you may also believe. You may believe. If you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, I invite you to believe in this one who has done everything for you to be saved. Christians, I invite you to let these truths inflame your hearts for one who has paid so much in loving us. Jesus paid it all. All to Him we owe. Sin has left a crimson stain, and He has washed it. Why does he? Father in heaven, we thank you for his great work for us. We thank you for your great work for us. Father, I am a sinner. I have rebelled against my God. And yet I am welcomed, and my brothers and sisters are welcomed into your presence because of the work of Jesus. Help us to love him and to hate that for which he has died, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.